0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Views from the Bath podcast with your three favourite PhD students, Edmund, David, and Ed. And this week with another exciting guest in Tori from the Art AI CDT. So Tori is a friend of Ed's from his CDT, would you like to give us a little bit of introduction about who you are?
1: Sure, so I, my background is international and business, so I grew up in Pakistan, Brazil, Venezuela, the Philippines and Mexico and I studied politics and economics at Oxford, worked for six years, three years banking, three years consulting and then I went to Harvard where I did an MBA And out of Harvard, I joined a consulting firm which I worked for, amazingly enough, 16 years. Um, I then worked for Barry's Bootcamp, which I understand you guys are very into sports, so you might know, which is the world's best workout. I was chief marketing officer and head of international. I then worked for Diageo, which is um, a FTSE top five company, spirits, business. And I was on the executive team running strategy, M&A and ventures. And then I came to Bath and did an MSc in Computer Studies because I wanted to change um, my direction and get into something that was going to be suitably mentally challenging and difficult and humbling and fun and all of those kind of things. And I'm now in my first year of my art AI because I decided that's what I wanted to do.
0: That's a- that is a exciting and interesting path through life. And it's, it's something we probably will quiz you on a little bit more later, the idea of taking on a PhD later in life is, is really interesting and a perspective that is sometimes quite rare and hopefully we can enlighten some people with that.
1: Well, I hope in the future it becomes more common. There's definitely this phase whereby you're working really, really hard for a very long time and you do well. And then you look forward and you realise you've probably got about 20 or 30, you probably do want to work for 20 or 30 more years, but you certainly can't keep at the pace you are. So a PhD is quite a good thing to do, to um, step back and get your brain cells firing again and think about what you really want to do.
0: Well, we'll do our normal routine to start with and uh, go through a little bit of of what we've been doing this week. Uh, We'll try and stick to a similar format to last week and do only the exciting things this week, because otherwise it can take half an episode of us saying we've done simulations again, which is uh, my normal routine for, for the last few months. So David, anything exciting that's happened this week with you?
2: Yes, so actually um, this morning I got some really great news in the fact that I've been added to the author list for CMS, which is my experiment here at CERN, which is pretty huge for me because it means that my name will now go on every single paper that the whole collaboration publishes, whether that's a a very theoretical analysis paper or an engineering-based upgrade one. And the idea behind this is that because any results created by the experiment are down to not just the work of the people that were analysing the results, but also the people that made the detector and designed all the components for it, in order to sort of be fair in terms of the author list, everyone gets added to it. And in order to get added, you have to do a number of sort of service tasks and have a certain amount of experience. So now that I've been with the experiment for two years two and a bit years perhaps i have finally gained enough experience and enough points to be added to that list which means that i will now be cited on every single paper that gets released um, from now i think for about five years as long as i remain well i think five years and then beyond that if i remain uh, at part of the experiment I, I was pretty happy with that it's a nice email to wake up to this morning it's an interesting approach that the authoring of papers
0: is something that I think is heavily discussed within academia. And being on this is will will help your academic profile, I'm sure. Uh, it will help whatever whatever metrics people are going with now. Whether it's H number, I think is is the popular one at the moment. Generally, only people who have ever touched the paper or ever done some some work or reading can are authors on it, and that sometimes. Can can seem a little unfair, given that the work that has to go on around, and especially if you're employing really highly qualified people to do large amounts of work in in the technical side, and uh, they get no mention on the theoretical work that it that their their equipment relies upon, you that can feel a little bit like they are getting
2: shortchanged. Yeah, definitely, which is why I think that having this system where everyone gets their name on is really great because it is inclusive towards people who have contributed. And in a way, it sort of nullifies that whole scheme of basing your sort of academic progress and achievement on the number of citations you have, because anyone that's worked on one of these high-energy physics experiments basically will have hundreds of authorships. So instead, recruiters will have to use a different metric and sort of maybe actually look more in depth into what that person has done rather than simply the number of papers that they've been on. So... I mean, I will almost certainly have a live updating counter on my CV that says how many uh, papers I've been authored on um, to get perhaps maybe through that first step if they do use that.
0: Probably more exciting than any news we've got this week. But Ed, what's been exciting in your week? Yeah, I don't don't think I can quite top that, but
3: there's been a few fun things this week for me. Um, We've sort of... In one of our modules, the AI challenge module, we've sort of started setting out the project that we're going to do in our team, which I'm very lucky to have Tori on in my team for that, which is good fun. We're looking at doing a sort of a light sensor to look at how people's interaction with light in their everyday life affects their well-being, vitamin D production, and sort of doing a bit of a project around that. So that should be good fun. We also had a really interesting seminar on data and children and how it's changing people's lives growing up in this really interconnected world of data and how it poses a risk to the current children that was very different from adults coming into this world of interconnected and data connectivity as opposed to having grown up on it and these people will even if you protect their data until they're sort of eighteen, people may have been collecting information on them so that when they hit eighteen and they're no longer a child, they can release it and and use it and sell it. So so that was really interesting to listen to. Oh, I've I've also done some essential travel this week. I uh, I took took the car home for its MOT and then cycled back to Bath. So that was ninety kilometres in in zero degrees yesterday cycling. Which was a
0: bit it, chilly. It has been really cold. I went out this morning and it was cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then this morning, University of Bath
3: Cycling Club and Triathlon Club had a Zwift race against each other. In which I was promptly spat out the back about halfway through it. So <laughs> it was good fun, but can't quite
0: <laughs> keep up with the big hitters at, at, at Bath yet. And you were allowing us to be, uh, to be ringers for, to, rep- to help represent you this week. Honestly, Ed, I don't think I don't think he'd have kept up with it. <laughs> don't think so either. So, Tori, anything exciting that's happened to you this week?
1: Well, all of Ed's excitement, I've also experienced. I guess the one update for you, Ed, is because of your essential travel on Friday. Is that Olga signed off on our project? So it was good to get the green light and to get going on that. And then the other main thing I've been doing is I've been trying to work out what my PhD topic has been. So I've been talking to various different people. Um, lecturers in the university and then also people in business and getting their perspectives on what how i want to hone things so i guess getting all of their ideas and their um their big questions has been another good excitement and then the other main thing is is training my puppy which is a never-ending battle and um, (laughs) you, you get some highs as you go along but mostly lows
0: that's that is a good interesting mix the, the idea of looking for a kind of a, a topic for your PhD, I think often people view it as looking for a title for their PhD, which I think isn't always the most useful way of looking at it, in that I don't think anybody who ever starts with their title, or the title has to be so general at the start, to cover all the bases that they might end up going down. Uh, you'd, I would be surprised if anybody really knows exactly where they're going at the start of the, the four years and ends up in exactly that place at the end so what's your approach been like for 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 trying to get that topic and how have you how have you found that process?
1: Well the way that um, our art AI CDT works is that whenever you apply to it you give them a proposal and then in your first year you are able to look at all the different topics you could do and um, hone it down in the course of that year so I actually propose doing sleep uh, sleep is a topic which I am very passionate about because it um, has extraordinary impacts on people's health and on their um, productivity and their happiness and using ML to help adults sleep better. We've got a huge sleep deficit in this country. We don't need to. There's lots of ways in which we could fix it and the ML could do that for people. Um, But then as I've been doing this PhD this year, I've really noticed there's a really big gap in uh, the economics of AI, the business of AI, and maybe even the business case for AI. So what I have started to do is to talk to professors about that as a big topic. And I do need to actually um, narrow it down um, to be something a little bit more specific and particularly understand how I'm going to use ML within it. So that's really what I've been doing is getting people's opinions and and bouncing ideas off them and hearing what they think would work and what wouldn't work. Um, And actually, that's really quite similar to how I would approach it in business, because, you know, I've always had my board of directors almost, my kind of go to people that I always go and get their advice on whatever particular decisions I'm making at the time and then I normally sound out a bunch of other people to get their ideas and to um, get enough perspective on the question I'm trying to solve
0: my kind of comparison with with the short work that I've done in industry uh, and looking at projects that we do there versus what we the what we're looking for for PhDs the one big difference I, I think I've always found is that the requirement within the phd to have that novel element has been has meant there's a little bit more of a i think it it just means that we sometimes are very careful with when we're looking at that project to make sure that that novel element is there whereas it, it it isn't such a valued always such a valued element within industry if if you using prior technology in industry might be something that you would be positive whereas sometimes that is something you might not want to do within within research
1: yes Uh, but then most of the projects which i've done in industry have been strategy projects so that's the company saying what we're doing right now isn't working and they normally choose the person to do the project for them based on someone who's got a novel approach which sounds like it might work so um but you're absolutely right that it would be completely fine to use existing technology versus here we're definitely trying to come up with a new way or a new application Mm
3: -hmm. so a lot of people in our cdt are sort of doing social science based research and other people like me are sort of going down the more practical route and are actually planning on sort of implementing some sort of algorithm to to deploy later on do do you have a outlook on what you're hoping to do sort of a mix of the two or
1: i want to do a mix of the two and and i really want to do some ml application i don't want to just do a social science um phd it'll be very interesting but i'm really trying to change things up and get some neuroplasticity going so i think the ml is good for me
0: both david and i might be in in a position where we don't spend that much time interacting with people from social sciences it's one of the maybe drawbacks of of spending lots of time at imperial is that it's such a focus pure science focused stem focused organization and again for myself the cdt i'm attached to is again very much on the technical specific engineering and sciences technical side that we don't have that much on the way of social science. The science side. There's only one person I can think of that I interact with in my my CDT who has a real who's who for from from my perspective is nuclear policy related, which is kind of a more social science side. But it's, I think we I sometimes lose sight of things by not having that perspective and not not being able to sometimes see the bigger picture. And talking to people from social sciences has always had grounding effect for me sometimes.
2: Tori, I have a quick question. Um, So you say you want to do a balance of both a sort of technical machine learning part of your project and then also a sort of more policy-based one. Do you think that having that sort of in-depth work on the pure algorithms will help on the policy side as well because you'll be able to understand what you're implementing rather than if you were just doing a sort of pure policy-based project?
1: So, I don't know if my social science bit will be policy. I I doubt it. I think it's going to be more about the economics or the business of AI. And I really think the ML bit um, application side will make it a lot richer because it will actually be something novel. There's actually genuinely not very much research at all that joins the two. And by using this new technique to try and get better insights into the data and into the connections, that should be a An advancement, and not just in insight, but also in techniques in the field. So, what have you done this week? What's been exciting?
0: My my week has been actually pretty very productive, and uh, it's it's reassured me about the feelings of research in that I've felt the collaboration this week. I had a very good discussion with a with a senior lecturer within my department, basically presenting some of the work that I'd done to him and saying. We've got this problem. I'm running out of ideas of how to try and fix it. Fresh pair of eyes. You know this field better than I do. This You have this technology. Where would you steer me? And he was very positive and I think very positive with the approach we'd taken, but also should say it kind of give some really good directing and some some nice ideas and so it's given me a a good amount of work for the next two three weeks investigating specifically looking at surface waves now which is which is something that has really interesting connotations for the way my research could go it could go nowhere but it's it's nice to have a new direction and it's probably meant I can I can take a nice step forward. But that's one of the things I've missed this year is that it's much harder to do that sort of collaboration than it was in the first year of my PhD, where if I had a problem like this, or if I hadn't run into an issue, and clearly in that first year, I didn't know as much as the people who were sat in my office. Uh, there are 25 people in that office, maybe, and three of us starting our first year probably know the least. And it's great to have that environment where you can step up and... Tap on somebody's shoulder and say, "I don't know about this. Whether it's a software problem, whether it's a, a knowledge problem, whether it's just which book out of the library should I get to understand this? Who writes good papers on this?" Not having that immediacy with people being there has has been a bit challenging because you've got to schedule a meeting. You've got to you you've got to find when people are available. People, I think, also are trying to just separate a little bit and have some some separation with work so that you it's almost sometimes harder to, to get in contact with them that being said this week was really nice in that I had that feeling again having had this meeting having felt like I was getting stepped step forward kind of seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel as I think last couple of months I'd done a lot of validation work which is which is great but I was also conscious that there's not so much that I could have written going into the thesis from what I was doing but now I can kind of see where the value of that work is and where I can go forward with it. We probably should start a a more general discussion with you Tori about your approach to PhD because you're so far the guests we've had on are have have all come to the PhD with very little experience in industry I'd say we I've only spent two years in industry in total uh, and I know it's a similar situation for the other people we've had on and it's I think it's great to see people coming to to PhDs from industry. And it's, I think, a sign of the times that we that we live in, that retraining is going to be have to have to be a thing. First thing I want to ask is how has it been getting back into university after a period in the world of work?
1: So it has been very humbling and very energizing. So last year, I did an MSc in computer science to um, make the transition. And I um, absolutely loved being back with folks who had so much energy and so much passion and so much interest in what they were doing. Um, And what I found challenging was learning how to code. I remember my first day on the course, they said, who in this room hasn't ever done any coding? And of the 100 people, two of us put our hands up. And so I have to say that things like recursion did my head in. It took my so <laughs> long to get my head around, and I can't tell you how hard it was. But it was interesting also because it was something so different to anything I've ever learned before. I've been really lucky most of my life. Anything I've learned, I learn it relatively quickly, whether it's a language or it's a new business problem or it's some analysis or something I normally understand but this was something I just had to put hour after hour into and then amazingly at some stage it kind of clicked and now it's my favorite thing actually my, my treat in my day is to spend a bit of my time coding
0: that's very true it makes you feel like you've made some progress right
1: and there's just... a beauty in it because there's an answer it's a bit like accounting I'm a bit sad I really like accounting because you know you can balance it and you know away you go you're done
3: Mm. A lot of people do liken learning coding to like it to learning a language, but h- how different did you find it, and what what were sort of some of the quirks that you felt
1: about it? So really different from learning a language because I speak five languages, and, and I learnt um, Chinese Mandarin um, only like how many years ago, twenty twelve, so not that long ago, and I, actually I think it's my brain is aging. Like so Chinese, it took me about six months to be able to tell a taxi driver where I wanted to go and actually end up there. It's really quite embarrassing to have that direct feedback as to how bad your accent is. Somehow with a spoken language, it's reinforced. So, you know, throughout your day, whatever you're doing, whatever you're reading or whoever you're interacting with, you've always kind of got it going on around you and it's very reinforcing versus Mm. code is just written. You can't really, you need to get people, well, I needed to get people to help me to understand how to do it because a lot of it was quite impenetrable to start with.
2: If we can just go on a quicker side into, into language, um, how did you find learning a language in, whilst you're an adult compared to when you were a child? Because I, I personally am trying to learn French at the moment whilst I'm here in Switzerland, and I'm finding it I think, a lot more difficult than I would have if I was, say, five years old or something where everything's new to me. So I, I just wondering, what did you do to sort of enable you to learn a language so quickly?
1: Definitely. So, yeah, so for me, I learned English, Spanish, Portuguese, and French as a child. Then, well, then when I was 12 or 13, I learned German. And then here's I won't tell you how old I was when I was learning, learning my Chinese. And I have to say that I, I took two months off work and I went to Fudan University, which is it's like the Cambridge of, of China. And I went and I got taught there and I tried very hard and then it really didn't work very well. So when I would finished, I had someone come with me for five hours at the weekend and she would just walk around with me. and I'd go and do my stuff. I'd go to the supermarket. I'd go shopping. I'd get my nails done, get my hair done. We just talk Chinese all the time. And then after about six months, I remember I was, all of my team were all Chinese and we'd always be in a team room and everybody would be all like talking around me. And normally I wouldn't have a clue what they were saying. And then suddenly one day, I suddenly understood what they were saying. And I was like, oh, my goodness, maybe they're just talking it easy to, so as I can understand. But no, actually, from then on, somehow it all seemed to kind of reinforce and work together. And all those months of Saturdays, exhausted trying to practice
2: chinese worked well, that, that's really great to hear and i think that's something similar that um, another mutual friend of ours ed in anna she learned french in a similar way and she said that she was basically immersed in the language completely she was living with people in grenoble who were just speaking french constantly they sp- spoke no english and she didn't understand anything they were saying up until one day where it just sort of it clicked mm. and she seemed just and from then on she was able to converse with these people. So I guess it is true that it just suddenly does click at some point, and you're able to sort of, something changes in your brain, and you're able to sort of put all the words together.
1: Yeah, and you've just got to, you just know if you've learnt ones before, you've just got to try. There's, it's incredibly embarrassing, but um, you've just got to put yourself out there, don't you?
2: Yeah, and I think that's something that I found is that, I, I, yeah, I, I'm in a way sort of embarrassed with the fact that I'm now 25 and I, I, i'm living in front, or well, not france i'm living in switzerland in the, the french-speaking part switzerland and i really don't know enough french to be able to get by if i was having to use french all the time and that's uh, yeah definitely a source of embarrassment for me so I, I guess i need to sort of almost get over that and just sort of uh, make an effort to speak french as much as possible whereas perhaps at the moment i'm not
3: yeah i, I think you forget that when you're first learning a language. You, you don't really have a sense of embarrassment when you're doing it. So it, the, the mistakes you make aren't really there. And everyone's there supporting you, wanting you to learn it. And, and it's a lot harder at the moment because you have limited time to go outside and interact with people and speak French and immerse yourself in it.
1: It is. And the other problem is, which I I'm, I'm wonder whether you have, David, is when I lived in Brussels... I unfortunately my accent's a bit embarrassing in French I learned it late, a bit later so so I'd speak to people in French and they'd answer me in English which is really quite embarrassing I learned that I just had to speak back at them really fast in English until they look completely confused and then they would go back to French again and you get a <laughs> chance to practice
2: yeah I, I've, I've certainly experienced that as well in sort of restaurants you, you try and order something in French and then they'll just say yeah uh, oh yes thank you <laughs> and you realise that yeah, they're they're quite they're quite capable of speaking English back, um, and yeah, you'd almost rather they spoke French so that you at least got the chance to. That's certain uh, everyone speaks English and that's the primary language. So, in in a sense, I have to speak very little French, in my day to be able to, at least in the work day. That's good in the sense that I can make a lot of progress and it's not hindered my progress in my PhD. But at the same time, I wouldn't mind maybe a little bit more French immersion so that. I do become a lot more proficient in the language because I, it's something that I really like to be better at, is and have, and not just be only be able to speak English. Because I feel like, especially in Europe, because as I grew up in the UK, everyone spoke English, and that's fine. Whereas in Europe, everyone speaks a multitude of languages. It seems like everyone at least knows some English as well as their native language, and maybe another sort of European language as well. Whereas I think as Brits, we tend to just learn English and that's it and maybe a tiny bit of French and Spanish while we're at school and that's something that I think I am almost ashamed of uh, has been from the United Kingdom is that we don't have the same breadth of languages that other people in different countries do Yeah
0: it's definitely true I think it's kind of interesting that you when you went into the kind of taught environment to try try and learn a language that that wasn't so successful my experiences have been pretty similar in that when trying to do kind of taught lessons I'm quite badly dyslexic and that definitely hasn't doesn't help with picking up languages I struggle enough with written English I've some pretty pretty embarrassing mistakes recently where I still make them some of my work is in shear waves and shear being spelled s-h-e-a-r and having sent some presentations to people with shear spelled s-h-e-e-r that being titles of presentations just because it it doesn't scan in my mind it doesn't don't see it and the way that English was taught or that French was taught to to me meant that there was so much focus on the written and the grammar and that sort of stuff. it kind of c- crippled my confidence in in french and I still feel like I'm. It's a language I'm trying to learn and, and get better in, and I'm slowly making conscious efforts in it. But there are some things I note that I'm probably still at the stage where I'm trying to translate things, and then forming the sentence in English I want to say, and then forming that again in French. And by the time you want to say it, the conversation's moved on, and I kind of want to be in the position where I stick my hand up and go, "Wait." hold I have something to say let me form the sentence and say it uh, and I'm around some people are tolerant enough to kind of do that for me which is which is nice but it is not great for the confidence and I think the the switch moment for a lot of people will probably be where you don't have that translation step where you have that you can kind of think enough in the language and the word comes words come like that rather than the that sort of translation stage
1: I agree and also you end up Weirdly, there's some words in other languages that are actually just better. They just have a better meaning for what it is you're trying to say. And it's quite funny when those start to pop up in your brain as the words you're thinking rather than the English version. Like for instance, like lixo is a thing in Portuguese. It's like so much better for rubbish
0: question I wanted to ask was how has it been going into a CDT environment where you're having to interact with and work with lots of people who probably I, I'm making a generalization here guess based on my experience with my CDT most of them are coming straight from university and how have you found that?
1: It's been absolutely the best thing about this year. The people are really supportive and they're really interested in helping each other and it's all about all of us getting through so I remember I think it was even my first weekend. I I had this work and I was supposed to do differentiation. And I'm afraid, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago I did maths. I certainly didn't do any differentiation. And and Ed was lovely, he just sat down with me and he showed me, I think it was differentiation, maybe it was integration, one of the two, anyway. And so I got it and that's basically what it's like. We all, it, it doesn't feel competitive like in some ways the MSC did last year. It just feels like this really amazing group of people who are extraordinary in so many different ways. And maybe about, what, half of them have worked before, Ed? Like, actually, there's a few who are a bit older.
3: I think there's only actually sort of maybe four or five of us that have come straight out of undergrad or, or a year or two after undergrad.
1: I, I don't mean think it makes much difference. I just think it's everyone's, you know, nice and chatty and friendly and interested in helping each other and cheering each other on. It's lovely.
2: And I think that's a really interesting point and something that's, definitely different to undergraduate in that when you're studying for your final exams as an undergraduate you get graded based on your performance against your peers essentially you you put on a curve and relative to how many people you are ahead of and behind that's that's what you get your grade in whereas I think in a PhD we're all working to a similar goal and we're not competing against each other because we're all doing different things and we're not interfering and I think that leads to a lot more of a supportive sort of network of people compared to undergraduate and that, I found that in my first year when we were doing a bit of sort of taught work we'd all sort of sit down in the office and work through the problems together rather than doing them sat at, sat at home and hoping that you get a few extra points compared to everyone else because that means that you get a better grade so I found that was certainly very different and it's, it's definitely a positive thing about a PhD.
1: Yeah. And also, particularly in ours, given that we're so interdisciplinary, um, it's really nice to help someone. Like, I can tell that Ed likes helping people learn something (laughs) that he knows. But part of being in a social group is also accepting help in things that you don't know stuff about. So you have to show vulnerabilities in those things, too. So it's actually... I, I think it really breeds a really nice team environment, which I, I enjoy. And I have to say that we come up with things I would never imagine doing. So at the end of last term, we did a political um, science project and I did it with a data science supremo and an NLP guy. And we did it on credit and I absolutely love the experience because the ideas they came up with were so far away from anything I could ever have thought of and they were completely different from each other and what I thought was completely different from them and really we needed all of our perspectives to come up with this integrated idea. The novel feels really exciting.
0: These early years within CDTs are really interesting and kind of unheard of in comparison to other areas of academia because it kind of feels like the both the organization and everybody in it wants everybody to pass and wants everybody to get through because I I don't think it's meant to be there as a barrier if that makes sense whereas a lot of the time the within undergraduate at least a lot of exams and things like that are kind of gatekeeping they are making to the next stage to the next stage and to to be able to get to that point and to make sure that you're on you are academically good enough to be able to given be given this bit of paper that shows employers that you are good enough to have this bit of paper therefore you are good enough to work for them because of that whereas the cdt approach is more about bringing people to have the skills to be able to do the research that you want and to do that rather than gatekeeping from people from doing the phds
1: with us is we then also have to do exams against lots of other people so ed will know that my stats is really not my strong point so we haven't
3: found that out yet for certain.
1: I know, I've got a feeling, I've got this really <laughs> strong feeling that that exam result is not going to be the best. So, yeah, that's why we have to help each other, because we have to measure up against other people in the university. But at the same time, I agree, the whole idea is to get us all together.
3: Yeah, and it's definitely changed how I think about choosing modules. So a lot of the considerations I had at undergrad were, yes, this might look interesting, but is it actually the skills that I'm good at to pass well? Uh, and some of the times I'll be sort of second guessing myself and and you're always thinking about the final grade but here it's more I've definitely bit taken some modules that I've thought I might not actually be very good at this but it's actually going to give me the skills I need to go in and do the PhD uh, and doing modules with more writing and more coursework is actually getting me in the mindset of doing a PhD rather than cramming and t- taking exams and, and stuff like that. So uh, I, I think that move away from the undergrad mindset is, is, is why I chose a CDT, to be honest. It is, I, I've sort of got that transitional stage to go from undergrad to being a fully-fledged PhD student, if there is such a thing. You talked about sort of this interdisciplinary approach. Is that something you feel is sometimes lacking in the industry. And the other thing I'd quite like to hear about is coming into a CDT with a whole range of skills and ages with nothing, no sort of idea of seniority, is that sort of lack of vertical structure a bit different as well?
1: Yeah, so on the last one, absolutely. And it is absolutely wonderful um, to have no hierarchy and to have everybody there for themselves and for the group and to move forward when you work in business you get lots of different personality tests and one of them I did really early on was about are you motivated by achievement affiliation or power and I basically came out as almost zero on power and really high on affiliation and achievement and so whilst I was obviously a leader and I enjoyed leading and managing not so much managing more leading and therefore being in a in theory, in a position of power, it was far more about the achievement that that enabled me to, to deliver with the team and the affiliation benefits that gave me. Um So it, lots of people ask me that about, oh my God, is it really bad not being the boss anymore? And I'm like, oh my God, it's like the best thing ever. And you know, like, for instance, <laughs> like, I, I literally do not want to manage stuff. Like, I'm delighted to have um, Pablo manage it and to help him do it. Like, that's so much more interesting to me than being in a... In a power position, I believe passionately that most jobs would do an awful lot better with more diversity of background. And so, a load of my time in consulting, I was the first female partner in Europe when I got promoted um, at Bain. And I spent years and years working to get more females up into leadership. And it took years and years. And now there's loads and loads of fantastic women kicking ass up in leadership. And it's all worked incredibly well. But I actually think there's all sorts of diversity just. The more different ideas you have in the team, the better outcomes you have. And gender is just one dimension, and there are many. However, coming back to the thing about interdisciplinary, because I think you're actually talking about like, you know, your training 100%, and particularly in relation to technology. So specifically, when, when you work, what happens is you start as really low. Like, Ed, Edmund, you were talking about your first year in your lab. Everybody else knows more than you and then you progress and you get more and more specialist. And then ultimately you become the specialist at the thing that you're doing. And that means that you may have diversified the kind of industries you've worked in and around the edges, but actually you've just become more and more and more and more specialized. It gets harder and harder to do what I've done, which is to say, okay, let's leave all of that stuff behind and let's retrain in something new because I know I'm going to be terrible at it. I'm not going to be a leader at it. It's going to take a really long time for me to get my head around it but there's a benefit. And in something like AI and technology, it's becoming so prevalent in business and it has such a huge impact in the long run that we do need leaders to understand it enough in order to be able to make the right investment and the right people hiring and the different um, decisions they need to make to really make a success of it. And there's absolutely no way, I mean, somebody should do this study, like how many FTSE exec teams, what percentage of them can code? Like literally, is it less than one percent? I don't know, but genuinely, so when you think about going forward, we do need to change that. If we in British industry are going to do extraordinary things in AI, we're going to need our leaders to know more.
2: What you say there is very interesting because on the sort of the tech side of things, you look at companies such as AMD and Intel. So the CEO of Intel, up until a couple of months ago, was someone who had done an MBA and was purely a business-focused um, executive. Whereas now they've brought in someone who has an engineering background with the hope that that will actually bring a bit more development and a focus on developing new technology rather than simply making more profit for the company. Maybe that in the long run will actually generate more profit simply because they're innovating rather than simply trying to squeeze out in the short to medium term extra profit.
1: Ultimately, I believe in the US now, I think it's the S&P 500, there are now more engineers as CEOs than there are... Um, MBAs. And Elon Musk is our big example, isn't it, of somebody who champions that. And I'd say that people with MBAs, they're not necessarily just about wanting to make more profit, but they just don't have the skill set. They would do the development if they knew how. In tech businesses, that's where I do think you do actually have the expertise at the exec levels in order to make the right decisions. The point is now that AI is starting to impact every single industry. Yeah. And it's those industries that don't have that that breadth of experience that they really benefit from, be it this, the chief marketing officer, be it the head of supply chain. All of those functions, they do need to understand AI ultimately.
3: So did you feel when you left the industry and went and did a did a computing master's, did you feel like you were pushed to do it, as in you felt you didn't know enough about this emerging thing and you you really felt the push to retrain, or was it so interesting that you sort of felt pulled towards it and you'd have had enough of working and you wanted to revitalise and retrain?
1: I've always been really lucky in the things I've worked on. One of my favourite things I worked on when I was at Diageo was this thing called disruptive forces. So the exec team wanted to be really on top of what the big things that were likely to disrupt them in the future and to get plans in place and be able to respond in an effective manner against them. And in that work, I was so lucky, I just got to, this, you know me, these are all the things I find utterly fascinating. So um, in it, I definitely did digital work, where I felt like the questions I was asking the tech AI folks weren't really as good as they should be, because I didn't really fully understand. Like I did everything I could to understand it from a business perspective. But I just, I didn't understand what I know now. And I knew that they they couldn't communicate to me either. They they didn't have the language to describe what impact that could have. So that was one set of, of realization that there's like something magical that could occur here. But then the other bit is actually more about society. And there's this amazing woman who works for Bain, the company I used to work for, called Karen Harris. And she's their chief, I don't know. She's not the chief economist, but she's like the global macro trends girl. And so I got her onto this disruptive forces thing every year. And I was like, okay, Karen, tell me what's up. And so she would talk about all the things like the decimation of the high street, um, the um, people working remotely, um, all of the things that the crisis has accelerated now. I was working on four or five years ago. And therefore, um, that's why I bought a place in Bath well ahead of wanting to apply to Bath University because of some of these trends. And then I was trying to look for where would the ideal place in the UK be if that's what's going to be happening? And also, if we are going to be working till we're 70-odd, how do I make sure that I do something which is really fun and keeps me engaged, but isn't as sincerely hard work as I've been doing up to now? Because I can't have that much energy going forward. <laughs> so How do I do that now when my brain is still really sharp and I can... Well, somewhat sharp not as sharp as all you guys but it's still okay um so how can i train myself now so as i can do something productive going forward so i think it's lots of and i didn't feel pushed i felt i've just felt excited and scared
0: (laughs) you bring up an interesting point about length of careers and i i think it will be a bit of a driver for more people going back into retraining because i i think there has been a kind of cultural and maybe just a worldview from from the last 20 30 maybe 40 years people have gone through university and that's been that thing they've got the degree they've got the of paper and they say right okay that's the end of my education phase now i do my work phase for 40 years and then retire uh and then i do whatever i want when i retire and i spent in and that idea kind of fits with the what single single company single place career maybe uh, which is not really the case anymore we're not nobody is or not nobody but very few people are sticking with one company or one role for for that long we and I think that's meaning that people are really going to have to push for retraining that combined with the acceleration of of technology and how that's going to affect our lives, I feel like I'm in somewhat of an interesting position, and David and Ed are probably similar to have, to have grown up through a huge transitional period. Through I I know when I was younger, we were still using cassette tapes, still winding up cassette tapes with a with a pencil. That sort of stage, <laughs> dial-up internet. We know that we know the sounds and the tones of dial-up internet, and going through the period of, the explosion of the internet and that general uh, high-power computing becoming available to everybody, that, I believe, will change the world of work. And do do you think that those sort of driving forces will push a lot more people to retraining in in PhDs or in in other forms?
1: So so yes, Um, and I'll add something. So there's a website, isn't there, about will a robot replace me? So without doubt, automation will do jobs that humans do. If they take away their jobs, what that depends on whether they have the skills to do something else that's more interesting. And you know, if we look back at our history, there's been extraordinary things. So when you think about, for instance, domestic appliances, those are machines that enabled women to get out into the workplace because we didn't need to have to stay at home and do our men's ironing and our our the, the washing machines or whatever. So yes, I, I without question. People will need to retrain. I don't know whether they need to do PhDs. That's maybe a, a, a subset of people. But ultimately, lots of people to have to more technical skills. The, the other factor which I do think is interesting um, to be a little bit provocative is m- in my generation, you've got more female leaders. And in some ways, there's not the same pressure to have a linear career. So I sometimes think some of my male colleagues... You know, they've got their wife at home and their kids and they've got their big mortgage and they've got the, you know, there's a they have to stay on and they have to work and they because that's their job is to kind of keep all of this going versus, you know, at least the woman who got to the top during my time, we had to break the mold, we had to do something different and I think we're thinking about our careers in exactly the same way and we want to make sure that it works for us and we don't want to accept what society expects us to do. We'd far rather do something which is meaningful for us. And I really, really hope that has an impact on everyone, that everyone feels like they should be thinking about what gives them energy and what makes them passionate and that they all have a drive to go and try it and to to do it.
2: I found and maybe one of the reasons why I ended up doing a PhD rather than going into work was that One of the things that worries me most about going into industry and getting a job is that idea that you're then stuck there for 40 years or something until you retire. And I just feel like I'd get awfully bored doing that and doing the same thing for such a long period of time just has no interest for me. So I think that even after my PhD is finished and whatever happens then, I don't think that I'll be doing the same thing for a particularly long period of time because I want to keep stimulating my brain and keep doing new things, even if it's sort of variations on a certain specialty, I, def- I definitely don't want to just stick to one thing for such a long time because, yeah, it, yeah I think I'll just die of boredom, to be honest.
1: Yeah. And I guess yeah. it just depends, like, you know, on that affiliation power and achievement thing again. Like, if you are very motivated by the achievement side of, you know, the intellectual stimulation and all those kind of things, then it, that, that could well be the path you take
2: you said that you sort of decided to do a PhD and go into um, computing and do the masters in computing because you felt that you didn't understand and people weren't able to communicate with you um, these sort of uh, concepts of machine learning and AI. When did you sort of first think that you'd go back into academia? Because uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, you spent some time, you did an undergrad, I believe, at Oxford, spent some time in work, then did Another, um, you went to Harvard, so you did more academia, and then you went into work for 16 years, and then did more academia. Between those times of working, in the first and second period, was it your intention to go back and do more academia at some point? Or was it something that sort of clicked one day and you said, no, I I want to change my mind?
1: So when I left university, I didn't stay to do the masters or a PhD like one of my best friends did, and she became an Oxford professor. Um and I said at the time, when I've had my career, I want to come back and I want to be a professor. And, and part of it is um giving back. And I really feel that now. Like I really want to get in a position where I could really give back and I could help. Because I do think there's a, a benefit to society that you could you could create. So that was what I said. And I didn't really think about it for 30 odd years, but it was kind of like always in the back, that this was like a lovely future that if I did well enough at what I was doing, then I could buy myself the opportunity to kind of go in and do something. And to be honest, actually, I had to do a um, analytical reasoning, blah, 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 test for some job thing. And I got a a really high score, like way higher than I would have thought. I thought my brain had probably deteriorated a bit since 20 years I've been at HB at Harvard um and so i thought oh if i'm if, if i it's kind of still okay then maybe i should do something now before it goes and i think particularly something like computer science it's it's a bit intimidating so you might as well get on with it if you're going to do it
0: definitely i think you you touched a little bit on something that motivates me a little bit with the choices that i tend to make with how i want to go forward with stuff it's one of the, one of the motivations for me in in life is that i want to have felt like i've made an impact mm-hmm on people and and made a positive impact the times that the comparison again between the kind of linear career i can i could see as much as engineering is a great career and has potential to do that i can also see people going into the world of work working for 40 years in a job and not really seeing the impact of that work and then retiring and i really wouldn't want to be in that position i'd want to do something and maybe your phd is a nice way of doing that in that you get to you have the analogy of you. You see the the sphere of human knowledge, and you crawl to the edge of the sphere, and you get your spoon and you make a little dent in it, and and that's your little bit. You mark your flag and say, right there you go. I've made a an indent in the sphere of human knowledge and, and made it made it better. And that's that's one way that you can have an impact, but also then giving gaining skills to do more. You've studied now both in the U.S. and the U.K. What were the differences that you you found between the two? Are there any preferences you have? between the two
1: I was very naughty at Oxford I didn't really work very hard I um I worked really hard to get there and actually when I was there I was secretary of the Oxford Union and um did actually loads of stuff with people who are all in um power today um and I was also I ran Oxford University newspaper so I just did stuff that I was really into and I I got a 2-1 which was fine without huge amounts of work luckily with PPE you got to do lots of revision in your last term and it was all okay HBS was a bit of a shocker, to be honest, um, in the sense that it was the standard and it was a lot lower than, than Oxford. And um, in particular, I think we're super lucky at places like Oxford and um, folks who give you tuition. So twice a week going into a world-leading expert and reading out your essay and then sparring with them as to why that's the right answer. That is extraordinary education. And most of the U.S. schools, what they're doing is they're doing SATs, they're doing like multiple choice kind of test things. And so actually speaking with an English accent at HBS was a real benefit because we had this real reputation for being smart which made it all the better that 50% of our grade was from our close contribution and so I was I got a double distinction from Harvard and I really didn't work very hard um, and it was so much fun so it was an incredible contrast of being not really that good at Oxford kind of getting through and then somehow the quality of that education meaning that HBS was a lot easier.
0: Your reaction to to the tour at Oxford is, is something that I can kind of I I see a lot, and I think it shows a little bit of the perspective that we have at British University. Sometimes is that, as you say, we work so hard to get into these institutions, and you're around people who are amazing, and it's easy to forget that the normal people you're around every day are amazing. And to get a two one in there is is good. And you say, oh, just a two one from Oxford, but again, you were that doesn't surprise me, given that you were doing things that you were passionate about alongside, and potentially the skills. There might be more important the skills, the connections. The I I don't like it. It's a th- that it's a thing that the connection and it's who you know. But the interacting with people from different backgrounds and interacting with people is a skill and getting those skills and and meeting those people and hearing those experiences and you learn a lot from from those things and those are opportunities we get from UK universities, which are we I think we often take for granted and forget a little bit about yeah.
1: It's an amazing, amazing institution that we've got going here. It's extraordinary.
0: Having lived in the US, I think you might have some of a perspective that I, I'm always conscious that we, I think, get a bit of a warped view of what goes on and what it's like being in America versus looking over from, from across the pond. Is that, something, is that something you'd agree with?
1: Yeah, um, and I've been lucky enough to live in Boston, New York and L.A., and I'd say that those places, the coasts, are themselves, if you look at the political map of America, are themselves very different from middle America. And I was lucky as a consultant to work across different areas of the US. For instance, I've done a bunch of work in, in Chicago, the Midwest, and the values are, are very different. And so, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of things. I remember, you know, in my first job in New York, going away on a Thursday night for a long weekend, taking one day off, and people were like, have a good vacation. I'm like, excuse me, I'm literally taking one day off here. So I think we're really good in this country about respecting free time and, like, you know, when people. I love the fact that, like, for instance, I think Diageo now has either is it male and female paternity leave or maternity leave is the same now, and I think a lot of British companies are moving in that direction. And in the US, you know, I, I can't even remember. Is it is it most women? they'd all have to go back within three months, but some of them go back within a couple of weeks of giving birth. So this whole kind of idea about life balance and what the employer owes to the employee and what the employee owes to the employer is really quite different. And I really like our approach here, which I like better than the Europeans, which I think it's too far in another direction. So I, I think we've got, a, I like the culture here. I think it's a nice balance.
0: It's interesting your view, that saying that Europe is potentially a little bit far, maybe the other way. That's something that's interesting to hear from from somebody who's been on a management perspective and how that impacts a fairly large companies.
1: You know, most of my career, it's been pretty hardcore, what I've been working on. So if I've been on vacation, people might phone me, they might call me, and I would like them to if something is going to go wrong, because I don't want to... Yeah. So there's a... Versus sometimes in Europe, people just, they take like four weeks vacation and no one ever calls them. Amazing. Like the whole of Italy shuts down for a month. The whole of Sweden shuts down for a month. Like for me, that doesn't necessarily work.
0: Do you you want to feel like if you weren't there, the the machine needs you a little bit? I
1: just think that there's a reality uh, of business and needing to get things done. And yeah. excluding someone for a whole month or, or stretching your workflow so as you have a whole month off. Just, I'm not sure that's, if you were starting from scratch, whether you decide to do it that way.
0: Maybe. I think we've got a pretty good balance. Yeah. So looking at a more day-to-day perspective, how, how's your day-to-day life with, the, with sort of studying now and a PhD compared to, to your work life?
1: It's so lovely because I'm in charge. Before, when I was working, I would have an assistant who would schedule every minute of my day and I would only allow her to start scheduling at nine. I have her finish at six. And that would mean that before nine and after six, I'd be able to deal with the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails that I would get. Some of which if I didn't find and respond to, there would be something negative that would happen. Oftentimes when you're dealing with transactions, you kind of need to get things done. So it is an utter joy to literally have to manage my own calendar, try and turn up probably for two things a day, Ed. And I'm not even very good at that, am I? <laughs> I'm also <laughs> five minutes in trying to get on and uh, it's very low stress. It's lovely. Yeah, so it's lovely. but But there is structure. And it's nice to feel like, you're working on something and you can see the difference when you start a term and you end 11 weeks later. You actually have learnt how to do like an SVM and you've learned, and you're, you, there's a whole load of different things that you've learned that's really quite exciting.
0: Is it nice to have that sort of termly structure yeah. in place again? Because I I, I can see working long term when i've When I've worked previously, it's been for periods where you know uh, the contract will end at a certain point, and so you can see that end date, whereas maybe when there isn't that you can it can be hard to see the progress made within kind of nice quantized
1: chunks. yeah well the the two types of job I've done so one is in consulting is always projects. So you always have that really nice clarity, but they're often an awful lot longer. So there may be like six months. So if you want to take a bit of a chill, you kind of have to keep at it for all of that time and then relax versus here, we've got 11 weeks and then we get to chill. Like that's lovely. It's not hard at all. But, and then the other type of work that I've done, for instance, running a company, so running Barry's so or running um, bits of Diageo, um, that has an annual planning cycle. So you tend to do things at the same time every year. And
0: week one week two yeah kind
1: of yeah exactly and then you have to you know get all the accounts done for a certain time you set the targets at a certain time you agree that and you've got board dates that you need to make and there's a whole cadence to it so I do like I like structure to a certain extent but I love freedom too
3: yeah I don't know I think that's one of the things that sort of killed me at my last job was uh, and also scares me about ever having a job in the future is there not being an end date yeah uh, um so uh, that's what I really like about uh, doing a PhD at the moment it's four years of pretty much guaranteed safety of going through doing something and then sort of knowing as long as you're not as long as you pass you you, you will get something tangible out of it rather than staring I, I don't know I, I'm quite pessimistic about this sort of thing sometimes it's just sort of I I refer to it as staring the void in the face with a with a with a unopening end date. It's, yeah. Which which terrifies me and I found really difficult coming out of university from undergrad, and it is is one of the large contributing factors for me coming back to university. And
1: actually, Ed and I did a personality test this week. And we actually came out the same. So I, I totally get you. I, I, I totally agree. And because part of it is both of us are pressure prompted. And yeah. therefore, you kind of need deadlines. Because unless you have deadlines, you're just going to drift a bit. So somehow that kind of structure is, um, it gives you relief.
2: Yeah. And it's the same thing that I found in certainly sort of like the middle years of the PhD is that it's very sort of almost sinusoidal in that there'll be times where you're not drifting, but very little is happening and you feel like you're achieving very little. But, that, but that's counteracted with the fact that you'll make a breakthrough and then suddenly you have all this work to do. And it, Yeah, setting yourself sort of challenges and timelines I think certainly helps that because if you just sort of have a project which you know you have to do in three years... And that's the only sort of deadline that you have. It, I, I, I certainly think that it would have been very difficult for me to sort of um, motivate myself for all three of those years rather than just sort of waiting till the end and then trying to rush through it all just before the deadline. So I think having yeah those sort of internal deadlines and internal targets to meet throughout your PhD is certainly something that's helpful. Yeah. It's something that Imperial does pretty well in that we – so Imperial
0: has two gates that you have to pass through before you can write your – before you can get to the end of the PhD, being the early stage assessment, where about a year – somewhere between nine months and a year in, you have to have written written up the work you've done in that year, and then a late stage assessment, which is usually after two years, two and a half years – you have to write up the work you've done at that point, which is nice, a, a good target to aim at that gives you some real structure. Because I i think there are otherwise, if you didn't have those, there would be times where the university would come knocking at three years, say, right, time to write your thesis, and, and looking at, oh, you've only done this? What? <laughs> it needs writing time now.
2: Yeah. I think that's something i found is certainly something that's kind of, I've had to balance, is that, working in such a large collaboration such as CMS and at CERN, you're you're working with sort of 1,000 people, 500 people, and they all have deadlines and they all have aims of what they want from you and sort of what they want the group to do. And those don't necessarily align with the same deadlines that you get from Imperial of your early stage assessment and your late stage assessment. So I've certainly had to sort of balance and sort of step back at times and say, no, I can't work on this at the moment, because I have to, I have to write a report and I have to sort of look at my work and consider and sort of, um, write about my work rather than simply contributing to the group as a whole. And that's only something that I'll again, have to do when I start writing my thesis is sort of, I would be quite happy to just sort of continue working and developing stuff for the, pro- for the group and for the collaboration. But at the end of the day, I have to produce the, th- produce a thesis and get a PhD at the end of it. So, um, yeah, that's something that's certainly coming up for me in the near future is working out when I need to stop and say, this is all of the work I'm going to do. I'm now going to write it up because I, I could carry on for a lot longer,
1: I think. The other thing it seems that you guys are doing a good job at, um, which I need to figure out for myself, is the affiliation thing. So you, you guys are doing this together. That's like a really cool thing that you're get, probably getting a lot of affiliation out of and Edmund, you were talking about um, your your leadership role with your with your halls, and Ed, I know you do a lot of tutoring. I would definitely love to be doing some of that stuff um, as I think about the three years, because um, I love, like I'm doing code for girls at the moment and teaching folks how to code, and which is so cool. It makes me so happy. Um, so I hope to also find some opportunities like that that give me a bit more interpersonal interaction, because otherwise it might all get a bit lonely.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm conscious we've quizzed you for a long time. Uh, I think I had one kind of last question, which might be a nice closer, but I think guys may have may have others as well. Just say so coming from industry perspective, what was your and especially from uh, management, and I'm sure you've been in, involved with some recruitment, what was your perspective on people with PhDs and how did that affect how you viewed them when they were applying? And has that changed since you've started doing a PhD?
1: I only really interacted with PhDs at Bain. So that was at the consulting firm. And I only ever did recruiting for MBAs and PhDs weren't coming in as MBAs. However, I had PhDs on my teams, and they would be these really, they were just amazing people. And in fact, I spoke to some of them when I was thinking about coming and doing a PhD. A guy, for instance, called Piers Mann was extraordinary. So they are relatively junior in the team, but their experience and their smarts and their interpersonal skills are off the charts in some dimensions, but then they've got some holes in others. And that's one of the most exciting things as a manager and as a leader is to take that person and then help them grow and accelerate a different path than someone who say come in from undergraduate or come in from MBA. Um, So I had a really high opinion of PhDs particularly ones who were humble enough to do actually what I did also when I went to Bain which is to go in at the bottom and then just trust myself that I'd be able to work my way up and use all the different skills I already got to to get to where I needed to get to. Um, And I... I always got so much energy out of working with more junior people. (laughs) So... um, one of the weird things is with management and leadership in hierarchical organizations, is you just get more and more and more senior, and then you just interact with all these people. All your meetings are with all these senior people, and you maybe once a week get to meet the person who's just who's the PhD who's just kind of joined, and they're the ones with all the amazing ideas. So it's so, so cool to be spending my time with all of those really bright, energetic, cool people now, and um, being able to do projects like Lumatic. Um, and get their energy and their passion and add whatever I can to um, help us get to to our outcomes.
0: So thank you, Tori, for coming on. This has been a really interesting chat and I think very informative for us and I hope everybody listening finds it informative too. So thank you for coming on, Tori. thank
1: you for
0: having me. Hopefully the listeners really enjoyed. Uh, Best way to get in contact with us if you have any questions or want to have a chat is on the Instagram at vftb underscore pod we hope those of you celebrating the lunar new year had a had a lovely lunar new year and uh have a great year of the ox hope you look forward to the next episode where we will be doing a review a preview of the cycling season for this year thank you very much for listening and a good night good
1: night thank you